For many in the Black community, navigating mental health can feel complex and even daunting due to historical and systemic factors that can create unique challenges. What happens when some of these challenges include a lack of representation of African-American psychologists? Furthermore, even within psychology, for those who adopt psychodynamic psychotherapies and treatment, the field is largely white. But that doesn't mean psychodynamic frameworks should be thrown out entirely, as it can still offer powerful tools to explore unconscious patterns, understand early life experiences, and build secure relationships. And so how does one apply psychodynamic frameworks effectively with African-American clients? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Zen. As part of our series for Black History Month, our guest today is Dr. Natasia Johnson, a licensed psychologist and licensed professional counselor in private practice. She specializes in working with BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, and individuals with disabilities. Additionally, Dr. Johnson grounds her approach in psychodynamic frameworks to help address issues with self-esteem, identity, relationships, and trauma. Dr. Johnson has been a guest on other podcasts, and she has co-authored two articles and a book chapter. The articles are titled Evaluation of Adaptive Interpersonal Vulnerability and Relationships to Attachment Style, and How Are Expert Therapists Similar? different, and integrative in the treatment of borderline personality disorder. The book chapter is titled The Mutuality of Autonomy Scale, an object representation scale for the CSR. As an African-American licensed psychologist, Dr. Johnson will be discussing how we help clients negotiate between being an individual and being part of a group, especially within a family setting, from an attachment lens in working with clients of color. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. One of the many reasons I'm excited to have you here is, one, uh, obviously, you're an African-American psychologist and in the area of psychodynamic field, which we know does not have a lot of representation when it comes to BIPOC clinicians. So it is an honor. So with that, Can you walk us through your personal journey and share any memorable events and circumstances that influenced how you got into this work? Yeah. So what one of the first instances that sort of sticks out to me is I had, you know, when I got my master's and I started working as an LPC, I was pretty content with what I was doing. I was a little bit burnt out. (laughs) I was a little bit jaded about the process of therapy, just because sometimes I was working with clients that perhaps weren't always giving their full effort. And so that sometimes it's frustrating. You sort of are very idealistic when you first start out as a therapist and and, um, going through rough patches can be difficult. But in terms of me going back to get my PhD, one of the the experiences that I had that uh, very much influenced that decision was the LPC supervisor that I had. She is also an African-American woman. She is also psychodynamically and psychoanalytically trained. 
And she has been such an amazing mentor for me um, ever since my 20s when I met her. And seeing her get her doctorate or knowing that she got it, I didn't see it, but knowing that she got her doctorate and seeing how amazing she was and how much I respected her and, and how she worked with her clients, um, it was just nice to see someone that looked like me at that level. So in many ways, it was very encouraging to see her do this work and the representation matters so much. Now, the I think the the part is why psychodynamic therapy? <laughs> well, you know, psychodynamic therapy is, it goes, it's so deep, it goes beneath the surface. I've never, you know, liked superficial work. I like to go deep and she introduced me to it and I just fell in love with it instantly. Um, it made so much sense. You know, when I got my master's, they didn't really make us pick an orientation that we wanted to uh, pursue or, or utilize in our practice. But when I met her and she started supervising me, again, I just instantly fell in love with that way of working, the emotionality of it, the the realness of it, the here and now sort of interactions that matter. It just seemed to be one of the modalities that that really led to deep lasting change. So the depth, being able to connect and see that, look the longevity of the change. And is that where the attachment style or detachment lens comes into your work when you're working with clients? Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the one of the pillars of psychodynamic therapy is talking about the past, specifically childhood experiences. And so attachment is right for childhood experiences. That's how we learn how to interact with others, how to trust others, how to feel around others, the safety or lack thereof, the trust or lack thereof. And that attachment piece is so, so monumental and it really shapes so much that happens later on in life. And because psychodynamic work is is usually long-term work, you know, months, years, sometimes decades in terms of people being in therapy, that attachment piece is really important to look at. And so when we're using this attachment style approach and, and working with clients of color, can you share with me some of your perspectives? Because I think traditional psychoanalytic and psychodynamic therapies, rarely is there an incorporation of race and culture in the conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of, and not just in psychodynamic therapy, but in, in all therapies, there can be the tendency to, to use clinical terms. And I think part of my work with not all my clients, especially my clients of color, who maybe they have started therapy with me and this is their first experience in therapy, really being able to break down some of those dynamics, some of those experiences that they've had in taking the clinical terminology and making it more layman's terms and us discussing how it pertains to their experiences, uh, validating their experiences, and making them perhaps not feel so alone or feel so awkward or weird or different. The commonality of their experiences is, is really important for me to get across to them. Hmm. The commonality of, would you say, your experience with the client or commonality of humanity or something um, else? 
Well, it's interesting, both. Uh, first, when I said it, I was thinking humanity, but now that you're saying that, there are times when, especially working with another Black female, I do connect on that cultural level. And there are times when we, or when I, when it, when I am able to express in, in so many words that I've been there before, that I get you, I've had that same experience. And let's couch it in some of your upbringing. Let's couch your struggles in some of your upbringing. Let's couch, couch your struggles in some of your attachment issues. So yeah, there, there are ways that, you know, implicitly and explicitly that I let them know, I, me too. You know, basically mm -hmm. me too. I've been there. Yeah, yeah. So in thinking about your stance and your style, can you tell us a little bit more about how do we as therapists help clients negotiate between being an individual and also being part of a group, especially uh, also being part of a family, you know, if we were to apply some sort of a attachment approach or attachment lens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, with my, my clients of color, historically, we, we come from a collective society. We're not as individualistic. And so collectivism can sometimes lead to attachments that aren't always so healthy. It can lead to being, it, it, you almost feel like you're living your life for your family and not yourself. And some of that is, is, is because of survival. Some of that is having to be interdependent on each other, with each other, which shapes the type of attachment that you have. You know, maybe it's more uh, of an anxious attachment where it, it can be a little bit too close, a little bit too intimate, and your your survival, both literally and figuratively, can depend on a family member's behaviors. And so again, are you living your life for yourself? Are you living your life for your family? How do you negotiate doing that day in and day out? Because it's going, it's going to affect your decisions. It's going to affect um, where you end up in some of the most subtle ways. And, and I like to be really exploratory with my clients on what those subtle ways are. As you're sharing that, there is a bit of a maybe thought or a reaction of pressure, immense pressure. If I don't conform to my family norms out of survival, it can also com compromise both my well-being as well as my family's well-being. So a lot of pressure. Right, right. And a lot of attachment is about having sort of the, the balance of dependency on others, but also being independent. How do you balance those two things? If, again, your history and your family of origin has been, how do we survive? It, it, we believe or we've had the experience that it's difficult to survive on our own. We have to be collective in this. Well, well what happens when somebody wants to break off and, and do something a little bit different? That could be difficult to do. There are a lot of feelings that come up. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about survivor's guilt, but that can happen in families of people of color. You know, one sort of quote unquote makes it. And what does that mean for the rest of the family? What does that mean in terms of your standing in the family? So you have to think about those, those different factors. When you say makes it, uh, what do you mean by that for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, I work a lot in the college system and sometimes with students who they're the first ones in their family to go to college. And so this is uncharted territory. And there isn't somebody in their family to show them the ropes, so to speak. And so making it in that sense 
sort of going uh, above and beyond what's been the norm in the family, what's been possible, so to speak, in the family, that can bring up all different types of emotions. And so, yeah, it's about exploring what that brings up for them. Yeah, because it's inevitably going to bring up some really difficult emotion. Again, that survivor's guilt. I've, I've reached a certain height academically. And what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? How do I still, again, be, be with them, be working with them, but then also make my own identity? Again, it's uncharted territory. Hmm. Hmm. And there's a guilt aspect to it. There can be, for sure. It, do I dare separate from my family? Do I dare separate from the normal path? Who am I to do that? Sometimes you have family members that give you that message. Who do you think you are to aspire to this level? Again, it's not always explicitly, but it's in the implicit, the small, minor, and I'd say minor more compared to like explicit ways, but the small micro moments, I like to call them, the little, little moments that, you know, give you those messages about, hey, do you dare? Do you dare to do something different? And, you know, I don't want to neglect, obviously, for the most part, family members are happy for you. They want the best for you. They're excited for you. They're proud. But you always have to look at the other side of it. And that's where the psychodynamic piece comes in, because the psychodynamic way of working talks a lot about the unconscious. Hmm. What are the feelings, thoughts, beliefs that we have that we that are at play when we're interacting with others? And, you know, nobody wants to admit that, hey, this is a little bit difficult for me that this family member is kind of doing these things and making these strides. And they may not even may not even be aware that it's bringing up something internally for them. And that's something to explore in therapy. Yeah, it's like relationship with family, relationship with oneself as well. How do we attach mm-hmm. to ourselves? Huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners who are working with clients of color? Mhm. Mhm. I think you know, well, one of the things that that I thought of was the psychoeducational piece that's so important. I was, as I was saying earlier, putting things in layman's terms. Sometimes we we learn so much, but how do you actually make it digestible to other people, digestible to the person of color that is your client, and really making it relatable? Because these concepts come from a framework, the psychodynamic framework, where you know research wasn't done with people of color to come up with these concepts. We weren't kept in mind when the research was done to come up with its approach. However, we can have benefits from utilizing this approach. Say a little bit more, because I think, you know, it goes both ways, which is a lot of research, people of color are not kept in mind. It's hard to, you know, recruit. But yet, I I like that you're also thinking, wait, just because that is the case doesn't mean you throw out the entire intervention or entire uh, treatment Mm -hmm. model, there are still some Mm -hmm. benefits. Yes, yes, there are some, some concepts that apply to, you know, we were talking about earlier, all of humanity, there are some concepts that are generalizable across cultures. And so what can you take from the psychodynamic framework that can be helpful for the person of color that's sitting in front of you as your client? 
you know, I often say it's like a buffet. You pick and choose what works for you. You don't have to take it all. You pick and choose what works for the population that you're working with. And so, Dr. Johnson, you've been doing this work for, for a while. So thinking about your career as a person of color, what were some challenges that you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share? Well, it's interesting with the word overcame, I, I consider these challenges always at play. And I think they're challenges that I continue to strive to respond better to, but they're never put to bed, so to speak. One of the challenges I'm thinking that I've I've had, and I'm pretty sure we'll continue to have, is how do I negotiate speaking up amongst uh, my colleagues and holding back amongst my colleagues? As we, you know, as we've referenced here, you know, clinicians, especially African American psychologists, make up a small percentage of psychologists as a whole in this country. And so you often find yourself in rooms where you are the only Black person or one of two Black people, et cetera, et cetera, one of three Black people, one of four Black people, but whatever it is, you're usually the minority. And so that comes with picking and choosing how you, what what do you speak up on and what do you hold your tongue on? Because, you know, implicit bias is a real thing. And luckily in the last few years, it's been gaining traction in terms of the attention that it's that it's garnered. But you have to, you have to be, I've had to be choosy. You know, there's been times when I've sat in meetings and I, I've said, you know, Natasha, like you want to say this, but you know that you saying this, it's going to be digested differently than if your white counterpart would have said it. And so do you want to run the risk? of speaking your mind. Uh, it's as simple as that. And it's really sad, but I'm not alone in it. I mean, I'm sure the people listening of color know what, exactly what I'm talking about. They've had, you have to pick and choose your battles. I had to, I was given that advice in grad school when I got my PhD. You know, I was told, you know, your your number one goal is to get this degree. That's your number one goal. There's all these microaggressions happening around me. There's all this blatant racism happening around me. Do I need, do I get caught up in it? To what extent do I get caught up in it? So it takes my eye off the off of the prize, which is getting that degree, getting that PhD. I need to think twice because I'm more able to exact change, the type of change that I want to exact with those letters behind my name. Right now in this program, I don't have those letters behind my name. Let me get those letters behind my name, and then I can speak up a bit more. It's very weighty as you're describing yeah. that scenario to yeah. essentially ask. I mean, some situations you're not even asking, you're imposing this, this dilemma for graduate students to have to take on to get their PhD. Yeah. Yeah. So... So in your case, just thinking about you, what does it mean to be a Black psychologist? When I'm working with other people of color, specifically Black people, for me, it means I am sometimes their first interaction with somebody in the mental health field. I am their first interaction or their first experience of therapy. And how is this experience going to be? Is it going to be an experience where after our work is done, whether again, it's months or years, 
they're still open to therapy, perhaps with another clinician at another phase in their life, or is it an experience that didn't feel didn't feel useful or didn't feel fulfilling or didn't feel as if it as if it kept them and their needs in mind. And so luckily, um people of color, specifically black people, therapy is becoming more of a thing, you know, amongst my black colleagues, amongst my black black friends, it's more openly talked about. And so for me, being a black psychologist, it's about continuing to uh, contribute to that trend that rise upward in all people of color, and again, especially my people, continuing to see the benefits of therapy, continuing to see the benefits of opening up, being vulnerable. Because again, historically, being vulnerable as a person of color is not always the wisest decision. And so when you have a space where you can do that one hour a week, two hours a week, depending on how often you go to therapy, that means so much. And for me to be the person that provides that to someone, that's like, that's the best. It's an, it's an honor to provide that space for people that may not have it in other areas of their life, the ability or the don't feel the comfort of being open and vulnerable with some of their most cherished experiences. Wow. Well, Dr. Johnson, thanks for sharing that. And now you're in full-time private practice right now. Yeah, yeah. Why why don't you tell us a little bit more about your private practice work? And my understanding is you are running a group as well? Yeah, so my private practice, I opened it is actually September 1st of last year, September 1st of 2023. And I'm it's it's really exciting. I'm seeing individuals, um, but I am running a group, as you mentioned, a shame resilience group. It's based on the the curriculum or the ideas, concepts of Brene Brown. She's a native, she's a Houstonian (laughs) right up the street at U of H. She teaches my alma mater. And I just love her concepts. And again, I think these concepts are ones that are really going to be helpful for people of color. And so, yeah, that starts on March 6th. I'm really excited for that. It's an eight-week course on shame resilience. How do we, how do we become resilient from shame? What is shame? How do we have it? What are the different experiences that bring it up for us? How do we become resilient to it? So I'm really excited about that group. And this group, may, may I ask, is it for BIPOC clients or is it for everyone? It's for everyone. So as long as you are an adult. So it's an 18 and up group. I hope to have part, people in the BIPOC community come. That'd be great. But yes, it's open to everybody. Okay. Any, what else would you like to share about your practice? So again, I'm seeing individuals, as you were saying at the outset, members of the BIPOC community, LGBTQIA+, the disabled community, issues of anxiety, depression, self-esteem, identity, stress management, relationship struggles, you know, trauma, grief and loss, any of those elements that people come in with, I, I'm excited to work with them on. And so individual therapy is the the modality that I most enjoy working in. I love group as well, but individual is definitely brings me the most pleasure. So Dr. Johnson, as you are recruiting for the group, you are also seeing individual clients. How can people reach you? 
Yeah, so I have a few a few mediums that people can see me on. Uh, my website is dnjpsychology.com. So that's D as in dog, N as in Nancy, J as in John, psychology.com. And I'm also on Instagram at dnjpsychology and then on Facebook, dnjpsychology. Um, so I would love people to visit me on that platform, see a little bit more about what I do, how I like to work, some of my philosophy about human nature in general, about counseling. I would love for people to sort of get to know me and reach out to me for a consult if they're if they're wanting to do therapy. One of the things that's so great, and, and you're aware of this, we have something called SIPAC, which allows a psychologist to work across state lines. And so I'm able to provide teletherapy in 40 different states. I've listed the states on my website, and that just lets us have a better reach, lets uh, potential clients have have more um, choices in terms of who they want to choose as a therapist. So I think it's really amazing. So if people go to my website and go to the telepsychology page, they'll see all the states that I am authorized to do telepsychology in, and hopefully you can reach out and uh, book a consult with me so we can see if we can do good work together. All right. Well, I will definitely include that in the show notes. Thank you. All right, Dr. Johnson, any final thoughts? And how can we support you? Yeah, just I encourage everyone to seek therapy at least once in their lives. I think it's an amazing experience. It can it can be life changing. And so again, it's it's becoming something that's more talked about, especially amongst people of color, and, and that's a beautiful thing. And so I just want to continue to echo that it's important to to seek out if you're struggling. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you very much for your insight your courage, and having this wonderful conversation with me today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. A huge thank you to our listeners. If you like what you've heard, please share and subscribe to our podcast, People of Color and Psychology. Other ways to support us include registering for continuing education courses or making a donation on the Multicultural Counseling Institute's website. We value your input and appreciate your continued support. You can send us an email, a message on LinkedIn, or send us a voice message on our website. Until next time, this is your host, Jack Tsun.